Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am working on very little sleep and much aggravation. So if I start speaking in tongues, I apologize. And uh, and because I feel logy and beleaguered and... Uh, um, and afflicted with Weltschmerz, I decided to have someone who could come in in a pinch and do the heavy lifting of the, of the serious talking. Um, And that is uh, our newest and to date, maybe first contributing editor at the dispatch, formerly of Fox news, a friend um, and scholar and uh, gentleman uh, from the great state that gave us Blaze Star, Tracy Lords, Don Knotts, Chuck Yeager, and Stonewall Jackson, I bring you Chris Starwald. Chris, welcome back. Heck yeah, Don Knotts uh, is good. You you left out Mary Lou Retton, Jerry, and Jerry. Did you say Jerry West? I did not. Jerry West, Zeke from Cabin Creek, also uh, a West Virginian, and with Chuck Chuck Yeager. If you want the the apotheosis of Hillbilly excellence, Chuck Yeager. If you had to pick the, I was listening to an interview with the adjutant general or whomever in West Virginia who was talking about why West Virginia had been so successful in getting people vaccinated. Um, and listening to this guy talk, who was in charge of the program, you just reminded of Chuck Yeager, and you're just reminded of there is when when Yeager did the most astonishing thing that he did, which was took the the successor plane the, to the one he broke the sound barrier in and pulled it out of a flat spin mm-hmm. and survived. Right. And he brought it back and everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing ever. And Jaeger said, well, that's what the manual tells you to do. <laughs> I was like, that's cool, man. Um, but that, uh, you know, so like, since you brought it up, uh, oh, and by the way, every now and then I'm going to say Chris, or Starwalt, right? Or or you freaking hillbilly or something? Just because we get a lot of complaints from people saying that we sound too much alike, and unless you have a helium tank that you can you know uh, fix this problem with, I think we got to do it the way like the radio pros do it and actually use people's names from time to time. Okay, or I could just I could just talk like this the whole time. I could just be like, "Hey, man, you know what I'm talking about." <laughs> um. Actually, you know, our friend uh, Tim Alberta, mm-hmm. he's, he's got this thing, and I don't know if it's a reporter's thing, um, but he will say your name okay. in conversations over and over. Well, you know Jonah. That's an interesting point. And as I think about it, Jonah, and it's, 
He does do that. It's weird. It's, I mean, I've noticed it a few times now um, on podcasts and, and whatever. And then I noticed he does it on TV interviews too. And I don't know if it's like disarming, if it's like some trick of the trade that they figured out or whatever, but it's, it, well, it, it is, is a weird of, tick. It is sort of a Dale Carnegie thing. If uh-huh. you, if you, people like to hear their name. So if you say it to them, they like you better. He, he is, as you would say, ensorcelled you. He has ensorcelled <laughs> me. I am, I am ensorcelled. I am, uh, I, I'm smitten in an utterly platonic way. Uh, stipulate, stipulate, stipulate utter, uh, What's the adjectival form of platonic? Oh, no, what's the... Plat- I think it's platonic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the verb form of platonic is a hard one to come up with. Platonizing? Platonizing, yes. I, I feel platonized. That's good. Platonized me senseless, but taught me a thing or two. <laughs> um, so uh, that's a very obscure four weddings and a funeral reference for, for those of you out there. Uh, I want to talk about the COVID thing, which you brought up in a second, but I had an epiphany about 10 minutes before we came on here. Um, oh, good. And I'm a little disturbed by it. And I put it on Twitter and I haven't seen the responses yet. So maybe people are very mad at me for suggesting this. Oh, dear. But I think the theme song to WKRP in Cincinnati qualifies as Yacht Rock. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Um, and that's that's just wrong. That means, you're def- that means Yacht Rock needs a different... I mean, I don't know. It just... It hit me hard, and I'm, I'm still I'm still coping with it. Well, I too got tired of uh, packing and unpacking town to town, up and down the dial. Um, I think Yacht Rock is too much Michael McDonald as as constant, currently constant. I think Sirius XM is the keeper of Yacht Rock. I think that's right, and they lean too hard on Michael McDonald. Um, and and Kenny Loggins and Kenny Loggins, yeah. And it's it's the it's too much. Um, I think Yacht Rock is smooth pop from the 1970s and 1980s, and I definitely think WKRP in Cincinnati meets the same. So the also the Kenny Loggins song um, at the end of uh, Caddyshack that the Gopher dances to could be. Good. I'm all right. Yeah. Just, just I don't know. That's a little. That ha- that's a it's little, little rocking. Yeah, yeah, that's a little, little rocking. Yeah. yeah, I mean, come on. How old are we? We're that old. <laughs> but fortunately, so are many of our listeners, and the younger ones have this weird thing about uh, our Gen X nostalgia. At least some of them do that they find it entertaining or perplexing. Well, much um, much like we found the fifties, yes, entertaining when we were the when we were the millennials age. Right. And my daughter just told me the other day that all the kids in her age cohort, she's, she just turned 18. My God. Um, he's uh, on you. Um, they have their attitude towards the eighties is what ours was towards the fifties. Yeah. 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 Just, and when you, the terrible feeling, when you realize that you're further from back to the future than back to the future was from the, the past that it was set in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of the cultural equivalent of the Wilford Brimley line. Um, do you know what the Wilford Brimley line is? I have many Wilford Brimley lines. Which one in particular? Oh, no, no, no. It's not a, it's not a line from Wilford Brimley. Oh, okay. uh, it is the age. I'll, I'll look up what the age is cause it's really disturbing and I'm, I'm sorry, but you've passed it. it think of it as like the Wilford, the Wilford Brimley threshold. Um, oh yes. What is this? It is, uh, how old 
Um, <laughs> when you pass 50 years, nine months, and six days, you are older than Wilford Brimley was in Cocoon. I have not yet reached that line. I am I, still. I passed it. I passed it. I have. Well, I, I well, I have the body of a much older man. I am still only forty-five. Oh so wow! I'm, yeah, it's youth. It's callow youth. Um, the only Wilford Brimley line I know. The the my favorite Wilford Brimley line is that when it is said that when the John McCain campaign was desperate to try to find celebrity endorsements, they basically phone banked, and everybody was there at the headquarters. Uh, staff call, who can we, can we get Tom Selleck? Can we get, uh, Clint Eastwood, which Republican, uh, which Republican celebrity can we get? And somebody got off the phone, hung up the phone with enthusiasm and said, we got Brimley. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's sort of like the 30 rock where, um, Jack Donaghy wants to get some Republican, um, movie stars and, uh, and all they get is Tim Conway. I mean, it's he, it's Tim Conway playing someone else, but yeah, it's yeah, basically yeah. Tim Conway. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I've, I've seen it for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so we will return to these these weighty and important issues in a little bit. But if, if we don't do a little rank punditry to pay for the privilege of, 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 of this, which my father would call not small talk, but nano talk. Um, <laughs> uh, so... I'm starting to think that the the pandemic stuff is actually going much better than we think. Yep. I, I saw somewhere we are at like 62 million vaccinations or something, yep. cumulatively. Um, but no one at the top knows how to message it properly. And, and I, I have the suspicion that the Biden administration in particular doesn't want to be optimistic and sunny until the covid package is released yeah um but do you think do you think it's just a crisis is a terrible thing to waste thinking you know or is there something else going on here i also think that so it was a year almost a year ago the the world ended on friday march 13th was 2020 was you know i had seen i i saw the last performance at the kennedy center the day before I got the last haircut given to anyone in Washington that day. And it nice. was after that, uh, it, it, it still took until, I don't know, July before people were, it, in some ways it took until Donald Trump got coronavirus mm-hmm. before it was a universal like, Yes, this is, and we have to wear masks and we have to do the thing and we can't gather. I mean, we spent months where the, the fundamental question, we were debating, should we just have herd immunity? Go, should we shoot for herd immunity? And maybe if a million people die, they'll mostly be old and sick. So let it go. And just like, let her buck. Uh, We went through months and months of that. And then going into the third wave or however you want to put it, it finally sinks in and people do this. Now, it's time to start coming out, right? It's time to start coming back out. I don't think there's any messaging. Well, look, yes, I think there's a crisis is a terrible thing to wait. But also, I think that you don't want to start touting your success if what you want is people to be eager to go get shots. If you want people to be eager to go do things, if you're a public health official, 
if you're a government official, you want you do not want to take the fear factor out of this yet. And I think there are there are calculated reasons that you point to. I think there are practical reasons. And I also just think that it's hard for people to get their head around it. It seems like we'll always live like this. And I think it's hard for people to change their their thinking and feeling on this stuff. Yeah, let me, let me question your police work there a little bit. Because um, right. I, you know, uh, Allah Pundit um, mm-hmm. posted this thing the other day um, about Israel's messaging on vaccination, which seems to me the, the much smarter, better way to do it. And I don't say this out of tribal loyalty in any way. The way they sell it is, get vaccinated and go back to normal. Right. Like that's, that's it. You get the vaccine, you get to go back to normal. You got Fauci and a bunch of people sort of in the, the, the globule of public health punditry and whatever, talking about how even after you get both vaccines, you can't hug your grandkids and all this kind yep. of stuff. And you may have to wear masks um, through 2022 and um, two masks. Yeah, right. Two masks and um, and a third one as a jockstrap or something. No, but I mean, it's like, it's it, but I I I just don't understand. Like the messaging should be: you want to get out of this, get vaccinated. And instead, it's like even if you get vaccinated, we're not going to be out of this. And I understand there's a little medical science about this. There's this theory that since the coronavirus can live in your nasal passages, even if you are immune, you can still spread it. And, okay, For that's sure. interesting. Fine, fine, fine. But, like, you want to, I mean, I mean, I wrote my column about this, and I want to get your take on a, on a different aspect of it in a second, but um, people want to get back to normal, and the problem that the Biden administration has is they're assuming that they get this honeymoon, they get a political honeymoon, which they do to a certain extent, all new presidents yeah. do, um, with the possible exception of Donald Trump, because Trump of the whole, not, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it, it didn't help that his... Uh, inaugural was better in the original German, but, um, <laughs> where is it, Stephen Miller, by the way? <laughs> um, but the, the, the problem is, is that exhaustion with the pandemic is cumulative. Like no one's starting like, Oh, I feel like this is a new day because Biden's in office. They're still stuck at home. Their kids can't go to school, all that kind of stuff. And, um, I hope, I mean, I really hope that this is purely a cynical ploy to get the COVID relief package done. And then once that's done, Biden will become less dour about this and and change the messaging. Because I think the messaging is discouraging people from getting vaccines. If you're a little hesitant about getting a vaccine and then you're told, even if you get the vaccine, you have to live as if you didn't, that's not good. Well, I look, I think part of this goes to tribalism and part of this goes to what you say, I'm sure some of it is cynical. I'm sure some of uh, so the good news is, yes, yeah, some Let's of hope. it is cynical. Yeah. Um, this is sort of like the stealing the election stuff. I, I sincerely hope that many of the people who I saw join the, join the herd were doing so cynical. I watched Steve Scalise on Sunday, and I was like, I hope you're being cynical, because otherwise that's a <laughs> yeah. real bad, bad news. Um, the, yes, but. I think the the fear that let's say you're, you mentioned Fauci uh, or your um, Biden or your Joe Biden or your whomever in the Biden administration, what are you afraid of? You're afraid of 
right-wing America. That's what you're afraid of. Um, that's the enemy. That's the concern. And any effort to say to these folks, oh, you know, you're overstating these concerns. They say what? Oh, yeah, were we overstating the concerns on January 6th? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the Democrat... Uh, coronavirus extremists on the safety side. They're coronavirus extremists on the uh, on the libertine coronavirus side. Right. But on the safety side, the extremists there, this was cast in political terms almost from the beginning because of who had it and who did where where it first ravaged the nation and where it didn't. Right. So it starts out hitting big cities and uh, blue cities and blue areas and not afflicting the, the red state. So even from the beginning, you have this political split. And I think that the refusal to allow good news, the refusal to allow, Trump claimed that as soon as Biden was elected, that everybody would forget all about the coronavirus. That has not been true. And I think part of the reason, other than the fact that it's you know horse hockey, um, but part of the, part of the reasoning there is, these folks don't want to give an inch because they're afraid that if they admit one thing, right, if Fauci says, ah, you know, it's probably going to be great, don't worry about it, that this will be overinterpreted by the coronavirus extremists on the other side. I mean, Fauci was called in front of Congress to testify at length about specific statements that he made. He was grilled by Republicans. Did you once say that masks aren't that important? Well, yes, I did, but so and so and so and so. So, the, the lesson of our media climate and the lesson of our political climate is uh, never stipulate anything, never give an inch and hit it as hard as you can every time. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I hope you're right. It's all about cynical posturing and trying to avoid downside political risk and all of that kind of thing. And I, I do think there's a certain amount of under-promising and over-delivering going on, which is a legitimate... I sure hope so, yeah. It's, which is a legitimate form of political leadership is... Uh, and, and you know... And in and, keeping... By the, that would be in keeping with Biden and his approach, too. Yeah, yeah. And it goes with... And it's and it's also very much the anti... And I shouldn't say anti because that sounds wrong. The opposite of what Trump did. Trump always said, it's right. going to be gone in two weeks. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. You know, or it's just going to disappear. This is the best thing ever. We did everything. And Mexico is going to pay for it. Yeah. yeah, all that kind of stuff. And Biden, by keeping it uh, humble, right? Or, or uh, I'm sorry, words are failing me. What's that thing you scoop food with? You mean the a spoon? spoon? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> by, uh, by keeping it, you know, by lowballing everything, you know, right. then they exceed. And like the that that premise was already established when he promised to do 100 million vaccines in 100 days, which was already the pace. Already what they were doing. What they were doing. All right, so I I know you're more of an anti-TR guy than I am, but we are both anti-Wilson guys. We are both sort of interested in that time period and all the rest. I wrote my column for the LA Times, which will be on the dispatch by the time people hear this, um, uh, about how Biden ran a return to normalcy campaign, which I think is now conventional wisdom. But when I first wrote my column saying he should do that, it was brilliant foresight um, in 2019 or something like that. Uh, but, uh, and I think he did. I think, you know, he, he ran as a sort of, the chaos of the Trump years is not going to be, is, you, you get to vote that out if, right. if you vote for me. 
The weird thing is, as a matter of historical irony, um, 2020 and 1920 have all these weird parallels. 1920 was the the return to normalcy election, Warren Harding, praise be upon him. Um, hey. uh, yeah, I know, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I, I kind of like his version of corruption because it was, you know, it was just corruption. You know, they was, had a, <laughs> they, his, his crew from Ohio, that was quite a posse. It Warren Gamamil Harding, they had a dancing girl who I assume was a prostitute. Um, uh, broke her leg. Uh, they had a house that was their, you know, their their man cave on C Street, and Harding. That's where they would hang out. Harding would go over there and they'd play poker and hang out. And there were lots, lots of lots of uh, prohibition era hooch uh-huh. uh, and ladies. And a gal dancing on a table broke her leg, and it became gangrenous. <laughs> they had because they couldn't take her to the police or whatever. So that was the kind of corruption that Warren G. Harding was up to. So it's it's kind of unfair, right? Because there are plenty of non-prostitute dancing girls. We yeah. can stip, we can stipulate that, but there is stipulate. something about in the 1920s when you're talking about smoke-filled rooms and a dancing girl who hangs out with politicians. It just feels like it's you know it's a euphemism for a prostitute. In the same way that, like, remember when the Tiger Woods scandal stuff broke yes. out? The yes. second, what, was, what was she called? She was a hostess. A, a hostess. Yes. And it's a a, like a nightclub hostess. And it's weird. Like, a hostess in New York is a hostess or whatever. But the second right. you talk about a Vegas hostess, it's like, oh. And not that, for a restaurant, for nightclub. She's a nightclub hostess. hostess. That's right. Yes. Yeah, quite so. Um, all right, so but anyway, the the you know we both agree history doesn't repeat itself, but it it rhymes. Whatever thumbsucker first said that, I can't remember. Um, and so the return to normalcy thing was Harding's campaign because, as as we all know, under Woodrow Wilson, many bad things happened. Hundred thousand Americans died in a war that he promised not to get us into. Uh, Six hundred fifty thousand people died from the Spanish flu. Race riots, labor riots, all that kind of stuff. And what's kind of interesting is that it's almost like there was a curse on Biden because he started his return to normalcy campaign before there was a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's like there was some dude with a, some bureaucrat with a clipboard running the cosmic timeline and says, wait a second, if you're going to run a return to normalcy campaign, we got to include a pandemic because that goes with it. And so COVID comes in later <laughs> and they put it in and... And so anyway, the irony is, is that there are like the, that the return to normalcy in 2020 campaign didn't include the concept of getting back to normal from a pandemic until late in the game. Right. And I think that one of the problems that Biden has is that he thinks their administration thinks that they've accomplished their return to normalcy thing by not being Trump. But for the vast majority of Americans at this point, whether they love Trump or hate Trump, what they think of when they hear the phrase back to normal is being able to send their kids to school, being able to go to a restaurant, being able to not wear masks anymore and not the Trump stuff. And there's that. So there's this tension between what normal Americans now think is a return to normal, which has nothing to do with Trump and what the Biden political messaging thinks is a return to normal, which has to do with turning down the political temperature and all the rest. And then there's the third problem, the third normalcy problem, which is that the Democratic Party base thinks the only return to normalcy they wanted was no more Trump. But they actually want to return to the status quo ante of the Obama years 
of using the presidency as this massive engine for for major progressive social change. Uh And these three normalcies cannot live. You can have two of them, but you can't have three of them. Right. Thoughts, reactions, Chris, Jonah, (laughs) uh, I can, I can say. So would Donald Trump have lost the election? Had it not been for coronavirus, you can easily make an argument that uh, the election was pretty close and or at least in those key states and that had it not been for the the depredations uh brought on the economy uh by coronavirus that trump would have indeed won um that's what his pollster says right and that's what brad parscale said but i don't brad parscale to... said a lot of things he does uh, say a lot of things um and i don't listen to those people because that's too much motivated reasoning sure um but it's certainly a, a case that could be made. It, and it was sort of my assumption, like, oh, yeah. But then I realized something. And I was thinking about this. I wrote a piece for uh, our colleague Sarah Isger uh, and her sweep note um, about the California recall election. Mm-hmm. I don't know, because Gavin Newsom's problems are, are related to coronavirus restrictionism. Uh, I don't know how many voters were moved to vote for Trump out of frustration with coronavirus. I think certainly polling indicated and certainly based on the way Trump behaved and his campaign behaved, that anger and resentment over coronavirus restrictions was did move voters and was effective. So I don't know. Right. I can't say it. So I think history will come to shorthand it and say uh, coronavirus hit Trump uh, had a good economy, lost the economy, lost the election. And in terms of if you had to pick one, Occam's razor probably says that that's so. But I think there is more complexity under there. And I think that there is more to it Uh, for Biden. He's facing that resentment. People are. When you look at the response to the, the schools, particularly, and this is where Biden finds himself in his toughest tangle, because Biden has promised to be um, the greatest friend that organized labor has ever had. And there is no greater concentration of organized labor power in America than public schools. And Biden finds himself at odds. He wants, after 100 days, he wants the schools open. He wants all the schools open. And that's not what a lot of school teachers want. And that's not what a lot of administrators who are union administrators want. Um, So he finds himself with a base problem versus, like every president, he's got a base problem on this, which is there are core Democratic constituencies that do not want. They do not want to normalize. They do not want to open up. And if he, this, in 2021, the sad truth is that everything becomes a culture war issue eventually. And the coronavirus is is absolutely a culture war issue. Um, And also, I mean, just to be fair, sometimes it's not eventually. Sometimes it's immediately. Immediately. Yes, yes, yes. Instantaneously. It's not like we ran through all the other kinds of right. issues we didn't to make treat it as war. a fiscal issue. And <laughs> right. We're like, well, I guess we'll have to do culture war. Uh, yes. Usually that is the uh, the first refuge of the scoundrel. Right. And I, I, I think I think the, the fear 
of coronavirus. I, I'm in no way trying to minimize the risks that coronavirus uh, pose, uh, nor the sacrifices that families have made, first response, all of that stuff. But it is with the, 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 the anti-coronavirus religiosity, and I, it doesn't neatly fall left-right, mm-hmm. but it's mostly on the left, uh, is an article of faith, and Biden would err politically if he seemed in any way nonchalant about this. Uh, the virtue test, the way to signal your virtue, the semiotics of coronavirus say uh, honor belongs to the man or woman who is more concerned than his or her neighbor, right? right. The, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees of coronavirus uh, are real and they're out there and they're preaching it. And if they catch you out, you're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. But I mean, there is this tension that Biden also says he's going to follow the science. And um, as Tim Carney and a lot of other people pointed out, the science is not on the side of the teachers unions. And, no. um, uh, and I just, you know, I, you know, I just think that, that, that it's a political, you know, it's not a political mistake yet because he's getting the benefit of the doubt and people appreciate that he takes these things seriously. And, you know, to sort of push back on the, on the Trump part, I don't know I don't know that it has to be a direct correlation between pandemic and Trump losing so much as if you were f- fed up or getting close to fed up with Trump. When, right. ti- when times were good, the economy was roaring, you could say, you know, gosh, I'm sick of this, all the drama, but look at the economy, look at my 401k, yada, 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 yada. You then see the, the, way he handled the pandemic and refused basically to take it seriously. Right. Even if you had complicated views about the pandemic itself and kind of agreed with people who thought were blowing it out of the water, that was a major ratcheting up of, man, this guy just can't do the job, take the job seriously. And I he think- lost the, he lost the election on the day that he looked at Deborah Burks and said, we're working on injecting, <laughs> injecting right. disinfectants into people's body and putting light inside of people's body. And that was the moment where by my, if I had to pick the the pivot point for Trump and the, the problem wasn't coronavirus. The problem was it created a stage on which Trump could kill himself, right? It created a moment in which people were paying attention. Trump loved it. It gave him a stage on which to perform and then he screwed it up. So, it's a thought experiment that can never be run properly because of the, sure. the inputs that you describe. And again, Occam's razor tells me that the most obvious answer is that Trump's approval rating cratered because of corona, not crate in Trumpian terms. Trump lived between, you know, 39 and 46, 47 percent right. approval rating forever. So cratered took him down to 41. Um. Yeah, and so my, my, my point of bringing that up is that if you were at almost fed up status and then Trump comes out and just doesn't take it seriously and you're like, oh man, come on, just take this seriously, um, that was sort of the, cam- that was the straw that breaks the camel's back for some people. 
I think the Biden strategy right now, you can't tell that it, you can't say it's a bad strategy because it's not obvious that it's not working. His approval ratings are good and blah, 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 blah. But given the amount of frustration out there with how this pandemic is playing out and now starting year two, there could be just some crystallizing moment where someone says something about how masks are going to be just a permanent part of American life. You can have someone just, there could be just some gaffe from somebody about how they're enjoying, you know, you know, exploiting the coronavirus and people are going to, could very easily turn on Biden and, and because they're just so frustrated with the situation. And I don't think that they appreciate the, that the goodwill that he's enjoying now is pretty limited. Um, Easter this year, I just looked it up. Easter this year falls on April 4th. Um, I think and that's about a hundred days, uh, for Biden. I think he's got at least until then, um, they, they have, they've had a couple of unforced errors. They've had a couple of wacky appointments, um, but generally have been risk averse and have stayed out of the news. If you look at, it's interesting for me to try to consume news these days as a normal news consumer. Right. I mean, obviously I still am spending two hours a day reading, <laughs> reading the times in the journal and the post, still the post, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm doing all of, I'm, I'm still, I would still be described as a news junkie. Right. Um, but I have been making more of an effort to sort of deprogram myself after 10 years at Fox about, okay, how do normal people consume news? Mm-hmm. What does a normal American do to get their information and like watch the ABC evening news, watch uh, you know, read, you know, what's in USA Today, uh, what's on, and and I, I'm not going to do Twitter and Facebook, but like try to think about things in those terms about what people are actually reading about and what, what kind of stuff they're interested in. And Joe Biden is inoffensive. He's mm-hmm. almost non like, it's not that he's non-existent. He is, I think there's four kinds of presidents. I think there are agents of change. I think there are caretakers. I think there are agents of change who become captive because they fail. This would be Jimmy Carter uh, to a certain extent. This is Donald Trump. Uh, and then there are caretakers who become figureheads because they themselves can't govern. So you can take like Ronald Reagan's presidency. He managed to be three of the four yeah. over the span of time, right? Yeah. Over the course of eight years, he managed to, to move through three of those phases. Um, I think Biden is going straight to figurehead. Mm -hmm. I think Biden is like, when you listen to him, I mean, they do not want him out there a bunch. Uh, He is not good. Uh, He's he's neither good off the cuff nor off the prompter. Um, He can handle small. uh, He can, he can, I think the Warren Harding comparison is good for a lot of reasons. Uh, But one of them is you're never going to make Joe Biden your guy to go out and defend your contra- the administration's controversial stuff. Yeah. I don't think Joe Biden is being controlled by Kamala Harris or that it was a Trojan horse or whatever. I just don't think that he ever in his career, but certainly not at, in these advanced years, is going to be this dynamic agent of change. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been saying forever, it's my standard line, like even when he was a young and spry middle-aged dude, 
there was always a non-trivial chance he was going to say out of the blue, get these squirrels off of me. That's and right. the, his corn pop. Yeah, his, yeah, exactly. His capacity to just blow up messaging is, is profound. Um, <laughs> so, uh, all right. So you said something about, uh, wacky appointments and whatnot. Um, Let's talk about Nira Tandon, someone I don't talk about too often, but uh, they made me do it. Um, what a... The deep state forced you to talk about Nira Tandon. Uh, so, well, the, the, the gods of punditry. The gods of punditry are cruel sometimes. They are. When they, like, I got my first gig in television, uh, reg- regular gig in television, on the CNN Sunday show when Wolf Blitzer hosted it. Oh, and I remember. And I basically started doing that in the teeth of the accounting scandals and had to get up to speed on like Arthur Enron. Anderson yeah, and yeah, Ron yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it, I still have scars about that. Anyway, um, Texas, by the way, Enron and Texas's terrible, terrible, terrible regulatory scheme for its energy sector is part of why you had to pay a million dollars for two granola bars while you were in Austin. So there is a... There's synergy everywhere. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, the, the punditry gods, the ones who said you can't, have a, you can't run on a return to normalcy without a, a crippling pandemic are also the ones who made me sp- spend through the nose on granola bars. Um, uh, where was I going? Oh, near a So, like, I kind of assumed that near attendant was a lot like the $15 minimum wage. It was one of these things that was put in on the assumption that it was going to be a negotiating chip to take out. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that I was wrong about both the $15 minimum wage and near attendant. Like they actually seem to want to fight for near attendant. They're going to lose. It looks like, right. I mean, like, yeah, losing is okay. Um, yeah. losing. I, I don't think, I think you don't want to take it out yourself. I think you want someone else to do it to you. Mm-hmm. So like the $15 minimum wage, the $15 minimum wage is fine for affluent large cities, probably, but a disaster for poor places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if the, if the median household income in your County is $28,000, right. Uh, a $15 minimum wage is uh, crippling. Um, so the, me- the median wage in Alabama, I believe it's Alabama, is fifteen dollars an hour. Not the yeah, you know, the, right. not the median minimum wage. It's like the median wage. You right. Know, that you know, that's that's deadly. And if you live in Del Barton, West Virginia, uh, uh, very few folks are making fifteen dollars an hour. Um, if they if they can find work, uh, it's not it's not like that. Of course, you can buy a home for fifty thousand dollars. Right. Uh, but anyway, the. So the $15 minimum wage is had to be included because it had, it has become an article of faith. It has become part of the dogma on the left. This is what it should be. And notice it hasn't indexed, uh, when it went, when it, this was, was it 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago that people started talking about the $15 minimum wage, Seattle imposed a $15 minimum wage, all these places that it hasn't gone up since then. So $15 an hour is, is, has been in the 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 platform has been a, has been around for a long time. It's a holy number, right? Exactly. But what is more significant that they're talking about is this child tax credit business, 
where it's essentially trying out a Andrew Yang uh, universal basic income for people with kids. And it's 300 bucks a month uh, for, uh, every, for every kid, I think, basically paid monthly. Mm-hmm. And you qualify for it even if you owe taxes. Even if you owe taxes, you would get the money. So this, is a, this would be a much bigger concept to start building out for the federal government than uh, jacking up the minimum wage. I don't know what the minimum wage is now. Probably about 10 bucks, I would think. Nine bucks. Depends where, right? I mean, California yeah, yeah. is already moving towards a minimum wage. So it's almost a, it's purely symbolic politics for California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so I think in that case, you have to put it in because you said you would. And there it is. And if it gets voted down, if, it get, if, if Biden can come back and say, I wanted to give you, I wanted the $15 minimum wage, but in order to get Rob Portman's support or what, whatever, the, whatever the thing is. And I think you see this with Neera Tandon. When Joe Manchin said on Friday, nah, bro, uh, Biden didn't have to take her nomination down. He didn't have to do any of that. And it's great because it sets the parameters for what is possible. Tandon's problem isn't that she's too liberal. As a matter of fact, most on the, on the activist left would say she's not liberal enough, that she's a corporate right. shill, and that she attacked Bernie Sanders. Her problem is she is a mean, she has conducted herself as a mean-spirited, partisan hack. That has been her brand, right? The Twitter pugilist, the no-you-shut-up school of right. uh, political discourse. And it's nice for Biden if she loses. If she loses, it's nice for Biden, especially if he can get Gene Sperling through as a consequence. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to attribute this to uh, a grand plan. Uh, Much of what Biden has chosen, I think Lloyd Austin at the Pentagon is a great example of this. Like, if anybody would have thought through five more minutes, right, people have to remember filling out a cabinet and the thousands of presidential appointments that have to be made. So the Trump administration didn't do anything. Basically, they had a series of of meetings in New York over the course of a week and threw together some sort of a transition. Uh, You know, uh, Andrew Napolitano for the Supreme Court, who knows? Uh, This was the, though he would, I would love to see it. But um, uh, the, the Biden administration was playing intersectionality bingo while it was trying to fill out a uh, a administration, which always brings with it the political considerations of faction, which also brings with it all this other stuff. Tandon checked multiple boxes. She's a hardcore Clintonista uh, of the first waters. She is an acrid, uh, acid-tongued uh, Democratic partisan. She is a woman of color. Um, she is all of those things. So she checked a lot of boxes and you do it. But if she goes down, right, if this is sunk, if Joe Manchin has killed her, uh, and I, I suspect there will be others who will want some of that sweet, sweet, strange new respect, Kristen Cinema, whomever, one of the new guys uh, from out west, uh, Hickenlooper uh, or um, Mark Kelly, somebody w- will want to get in on this because uh, it's, it's, it's free and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody likes those things. So I, for Biden, if Tandon is defeat, he doesn't have to, he can say, I did my best. I fought for her. This is like, what's the, what's the worst statement that you can hear about yourself 
from the White House press secretary if you work for an administration. The president has total confidence <laughs> in Jonah and the job that he is doing at the Department of State. And that means pack your box, get right. your stuff together, because he has total confidence right before he calls you up and says, you got to resign. So it's funny, though, um, not to get too meta. Um, I agree with you. Tandon is is a beltway green room creature. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're getting a little close to home. You're cutting a little close <laughs> to home here, sir. Um, uh, fair enough. But, you know, I, 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 I put it this. she's of a specific phylum. Yes. Of beltway so. green room yep. creature. Um, yep. And. Uh, and what's kind of interesting to me, so first of all, part of the problem is she's not particularly, like, I think she's smart. Yeah, but she's not particularly qualified. And at the same time, it really doesn't matter that she's not because OMB is purely a political do what the president wants you to do job, right? Well, you, you do need though, I think when you think about who's a good, uh, uh, Gene Sperling certainly qualifies as the kind of guy you want kind of person you want to be at OMB, Mitch Daniels, sure. uh, Rob Portman. So it is a political job, but you are a you are a dynamic hinge point for stuff to happen because you have to work with Congress. So you need capacity to work. That's that's why former members of Congress that that all, all of that stuff goes into it. I know Joe Biden wants to do wants to be able to do what Bill Clinton did. He wants to be able to say, we had a $28 trillion You need debt. to qualify <laughs> sentences that <laughs> yeah, begin yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's a, he's a good man. Good man loves Jilly. Uh, <laughs> the, he wants to say that he scored, that in a country with a $28 trillion debt and racking up uh, trillion dollar deficits year after year, that he found a way to forge. We haven't had a real budget in the United States since 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Barack Obama, for uh, all of the praise heaped upon him these days, has forgotten that his uh, effort to decouple the debt ceiling from uh, spending bills, and that he was, and when he said that this kind of deficit spending was unpatriotic of George Bush. So since 2007, we've it's been shambolic, and I think Biden would love to return to it. And I think his OMB director will be very important in his administration because this is going to be a person who is going to be engaging in shuttle diplomacy back and forth. And in fact, there are plenty of Republicans, I say plenty, there are a number of Republicans who say give Biden Tandon because, and I think this is me being cynical about their cynicism, but that they think, you know what, uh, she gets it. She's a phony. She's a phony just like us. <laughs> and, she, and once the doors are closed, we can cut a deal. So, but I, I, you make a good point, which I hadn't fully thought about, but um, my point was going to be that if you're a conservative of some seriousness, the stakes for near attendance confirmation are, are relatively low. Mm-hmm. If you're a, particularly a social conservative of some seriousness, um, the stakes of Javier Becerra's nomination are quite high. You got it. You got it. And it seems to me like it is a interesting little codicil to the bylaws of favorite college. No, it's an interesting little codicil of um, the stuff that I'm usually ranting about when it comes to people like Matt Gates. Right. that, that 
what is killing her nomination is dumb Twitter bullshit. Right. And that doesn't really matter. That is sound and fury signifying nothing as, as I believe uh, Ted Cruz, as, as, as what's her face thought Faulkner said. Um, and wait, what was this? I didn't know about. Oh, that. so Andrea Mitchell tried to dunk on Ted Cruz. Oh, no. for saying something was full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And she was like, that's from, f-. and Ted had said it was from Shakespeare, which it is. And, which it is. and she says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's from Faulkner. And it, <gasps> it became a thing. And Oh no. So, but my buddy is never like, dunk. Those kinds of feuds are so, you know, they're so meaningless in the big picture kind of thing. But the fact that the GOP is marshalling opposition to Tandon while only late in the game realizing that Becerra is the bigger problem um, shows you how distorting these sort of beltway Twitter social media things are to larger issues um, in politics. Or am I wrong? Well, but No, you're not wrong, but, but the fight is the point, right? Yeah. The fight is the whole point. And it, look. I think if you if you were a conservative in the United States Senate today, it would be certainly permissible to say, I think the president ought to have his team. And unless you can come up with, uh, unless there's something disqualifying, really disqualifying about this person, they lied, cheated, or stealed, they're, un- they're stole, stealed, uh, they're unfit for office uh, in, some, in some characterological way. That I'm going to vote for, that I'm going to approve the president's confirmations because he ought to get who he. And it, by the way, would even be a conservative position to say that about Supreme Court justice, everything else to say sure. the president's the president. And if they're qualified for the office and qualified character logically, they can have who they want. Um, the point about the value of Tandon versus the value of Becerra, there'll still be a fight about Becerra. There's, yeah. there, there will still be. Uh, at, you know, uh, an awful conflict about Becerra, but, and Manchin may be in the middle of that one too. I don't know. But don't you um, think if you, if you, if you get Tandon scalp, doesn't it make it harder to also get Becerra's scalp? It does. And, and for, if you're Manchin and you're these other Democrats, you want to go. So the people who are engaging in the fight are going where the clicks are. They're going where the views are. They're going where the action is. And if the action is over here at near Tandon, go get them. Right. Uh, write your phony baloney think piece, do your wild screed, do anything you want. Um, and then go to the next one because it is, the beast is never fed. And you can, you, the, the umbrage that you can take is infinite. If you're Joe Manchin, you're, if you're Kristen Sinema, uh, yes. If I've opposed Neera Tandon and defeated her nomination to much fanfare, if that has happened, then I have more room to back Javier Becerra, even though in Becerra's case for Manchin, this butts up hard against uh, abortion issues. This butts up hard against other stuff. So yes, Tandon provides cover. I don't know that she was designed as a sacrificial lamb or a stalking horse, a stalking lamb, Uh, but uh, it's certainly within reason to use her that way once the dynamic exists. Yeah, I mean, the image that comes to mind is mansion as the t-rex in the first jurassic park movie yes and, and tandon's the goat tied to the stage chain she's the chained goat <laughs> yes exactly or jeff goldblum or who was it wasn't jeff goldblum who was in the bathroom that was a, that was the worst 
that that moment where the the, the guy's hiding in the bathroom yeah, and T-Rex comes and that house, yeah, yeah. That fully realized many layers of of fear for me as like a 13-year-old that uh-huh. not only would you be eaten by a dinosaur, but it would happen while you were going potty and it was mm-hmm. just it was the worst thing imaginable. Um we could come up with something worse to imagine. <laughs> I mean, we're, 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 we're creative people here. All right, so where should we go in our, in our precious time remaining on this? I mean, I, I got to say, I, I, my passion for punditry is, is less than it once was. And, oh. uh, um, and I think that's just, be, it's, it's part of the decompression process. Of, that's, like, that's, like, that's like finding out that uh, Babe Ruth isn't into baseball. That's like, he's just like, uh, eh, I'm not feeling it anymore. No, uh, I mean, p- part of it is, you know, you spend a, a, a week uh, fighting off um, humongous and his Raiders in Austin, Texas. Um, <laughs> and then you come back here and, you know, I feel like Tom Hanks turning the light switch off and on at the FedEx headquarters at his hotel after he gets back from his, from his Island for four years or whatever. It was. Uh, do you get to make out with Helen Hunt? No. Um, the reality for me about how much I wanted to talk about what I wanted to talk about sunk in so it was about a month ago that I was supposed to be on this, or you asked me to come on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I requested permission from Fox to do so and hadn't heard back when I got fired. I, so right. the reason, I, the reason <laughs> I didn't hear back was that I was about to get fired. Uh, and I didn't know it. And I was like, I don't know what's taking so long, but I'll let you know. Uh, I got to say, as excuses for not coming on, that was yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. better ones. It was solid. Yeah. Um, so for me, uh, that was the first day. What was that? Uh, Jan- January 19th mm-hmm. was the first day since 1998 that I was not a full-time paid journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the time since then, the month since then, uh, I got my journalist, uh, I, I need a dispatch press pass. Uh, so I don't know whether you or Steve have the laminating machine, but I do need a dispatch press pass. Um, the, the month since then I've done a lot of thinking about the media business mm-hmm. and I've done a lot of thinking about, uh, all that stuff. Uh, and it makes me more convinced that you guys are right, right, right. Um, and the good, good asking people to pay, uh, a relatively modest sum, Mm -hmm. uh, for quality content. If people don't want clickbait, they have to pay for it. And there's really two models for journalism that I see that could work. One is patronage. Uh, if Jeff Bezos wants to lose money on the Washington post, he can lose money on the Washington post and he can have a newspaper. Uh, I don't know how much money McCormick and the press Lords made, uh, a hundred years ago but uh, it was as much a vanity project for them. So there's patronage can work, but then fee-for-service can work. And that's why I just love your idea and I love being part of it. Um, but I also have observed in the same time. Just, you know, we, we, we took you on mostly because we needed a ringer for the softball team. But go on. <laughs> yes, that's true. What, but what's the name? The Dispatch what? You have to come up with a, with a quality name for the Dispatch softball team. That's true. Um, the, the Dispatchers? The, 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 or how does David French say the name? 
Dispatch. I mean, I, I, I dispatch. I, I, I can't, the dispatch. I, I, I don't mock him too much for this because, um, in the living hell that was trying to come up with the name for the dispatch, um, I discovered that I cannot, and I, I do not hear it. Okay, but I cannot pronounce the word compass the way normal human beings do. Compass. That's the word. The thing with the points but you to the say, north. But you say compass, like non-compass. Menace. Compass. I, yeah. I, I, I can't. And, and There's a little, I love when your New York comes out. You, you and Steve are actually alike in this way, which is your New York accent is far from the surface, but sometimes it just like erupts out, just like his Wisconsin, his Wauwatosa yeah. comes charge, breaking through the surface of the ice. You and should, I think that's compass. You should hear him do his impersonation of his mom, uh, which he does with love. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is like out of Fargo. It's really. I ran into. I ran. I ran into um, uh, uh, Reince Priebus at the grocery store the other day, and uh, I introduced him to my eldest man child who was with us. We talked for a moment, and we went in. And my eldest, who is twelve, said, "Is he from Wisconsin?" <laughs> oh yeah, you betcha he is. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, you. But anyway. I think that as I listen to Maxine Waters talk about we need what what the term now is disinformation. Mm-hmm. So the government needs to take a more aggressive role in disinformation. And I so I've got the left and the right who both want to come for us, right? Yeah. Uh, the left and the right are are in agreement that it's not just social media. It's all media. It's really everything. And shouldn't somebody be in charge? Uh, Joe Biden, uh, the New York Times talked about the need for a truth czar mm-hmm. in the Biden administration. What could go wrong? What could go? And the fact that there are people on the right, well, I guess it's, it's not surprising. But as a fundamental precept, I would rather live in an open sewer of Russian bot disinformation where it's an open space and it's a disaster, a terrible outcome for the country, right? Uh, I would rather live in that space than I would one in which the U.S. government had a anti-disinformation office Mm -hmm. uh, and was able to censor uh, content online and censor and and judge whether a cable news show was uh, wholesome and appropriate or not. And I feel like if... Republicans don't turn back from this, if they do not turn back from the desire to regulate speech, that we're going to end up with speech getting regulated. And I pray that, you know, if that were to happen, that the Supreme Court would say you cannot and that this is fundamentally unconstitutional and un-American. But man, do I feel like I'm in a place, we are in a place now where the pressures from the Democrats and the Republicans to try to get control of the changing media landscape is a real threat. Yeah, I, mean, I got to say, I, you know, I've been working on this piece off and on for almost a month. I just keep getting distracted, mostly by the ice marauders, but um, about what I got right and what I got wrong and how I have to rethink liberal fascism. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to leave all that in the locker room here. But one of the things that just astounds me is how quickly the dogmatic commitment to sort of constitutional principles that largely define big chunks of the right 10 years ago, the sort of almost ancestor worship of the founders, um, 
how quickly that can be just sort of discarded out of political convenience. And, you know, Drew Clavin, who I like a lot, you know, he's a nice guy. I mm -hmm. disagree with him passionately about all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's some bandersnatch from human events whose name I can't remember. But I've seen this, these similar arguments from these guys and from others about how they want to make access to platforms a civil right. Yep. And by, by that, they mean places like Twitter and Facebook can't erase your account, right? And they, um, and by extension, that means that the dispatch couldn't ban you from our comments section or whatever right. it is, right? And I don't understand how, and I, and I think some of these people are quite sincere in all of this. But oh, yeah. I don't under, I, I honestly don't understand how smart people, and some of these are smart people, can get themselves to that kind of place and also claim to understand our constitutional order. I mean, I just, it's something very that, hard for me to grasp. Something that you have, that you have talked about on many occasions that I think is really undervalued is technology is a lot more important than political philosophy in so many ways. Yeah. Right. Um, the 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 story of how we will the, right now I can't remember the name of it, but there is a new social media concept that is bitcoined. Essentially, mm -hmm. you can't be kicked off of it because there's no it. Every every participant is their own node of the network, and it's decentralized, so they can't be kicked off the platform and all that stuff. We have no idea. When we think about, let's say, the Microsoft antitrust lawsuit from the Reno Justice Department, do you know, uh, you know, and the goal there for people who were under 100, uh, the goal there was that they said that Microsoft was going to crowd out Netscape as the browser, that they were the, uh, putting Netscape as, at a competitive disadvantage because they were using their monopolistic control over the operating system for PCs to make people get Microsoft's uh, ex uh, Explorer was the name of their web right. uh, web browser. Well, guess where Explorer ranks on the list of uh, web browsers now? It's like 20th. It's yeah. behind four versions of Safari. It's behind because the because the stupid iPhone because the because the the pocket computer was invented. All of the discussions around this stuff changed. Right. And it will change again unless and until the government interdicts itself. But it's crushing Alta Vista. I mean, yes. just, you know. And, Nailing Alta Vista. And Nailing also, it. ask Jeeves. Remember <laughs> Ask Jeeves? Yeah, I loved Ask Jeeves. I remember spending whole afternoons when I was supposed to be figuring out what was going on in circuit court uh, just asking Jeeves questions. Yeah, and dirty ones, too. Ask Jeeves was the strangest I mean, it's, it's hard to explain to people that there used to be a search engine where you ask questions of a British butler. In the future, we will, Jeeves will come back. He will have his revenge and everybody's in-home servant will be called Jeeves and he'll have the last laugh, Jonah. I think that's probably right. Yeah, no, oh, did you get... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, on the, on the technology thing, I mean, the, you know, the example that it's weird, and I think I'm mentioned this once with a, on a podcast with Tim Carney. When I was the editor of my, when I started at my school, news, my college newspaper. Um, what was as, its name? 
I, I, I defecate you negatory. It was yeah. the quindecum, <laughs> which is Latin for, Latin for 15 days. Yes, um, sir. It came out every 15 days. So that um, was also the name of a prog rock band. I'm sure. Um, when I took, when I, when I became the editor of the thing, the first thing we did was, uh, we didn't get rid of the name Quindecum, but we shortened it to the, the Q, um, which had a more hip kind yeah, of. Yeah, I was going to say this, this, it's all coming back around. And, you um, are Q. and, um, damn it. I just let that slip. <laughs> Slipped out. Um, but so it was interesting. Like the, the, the way you did page layout was, um, Wow. The, the entire staff got together and we used exacto knives and we cut yep. out strips and then you put them on, glued them onto paper and then they sent it to the printer and they took a picture of it all and all that kind of thing. And incredibly inefficient, incredibly yes. dumb and really un, aesthetically unpleasing. But, but fun, but fun. But fun. And also it was the only occasion where the entire staff was together. You yep. ordered pizza and it created an esprit de corps and a sense of camaraderie and all that kind of stuff. And when I took over with my, my co-editor guy, um, we got computers and we said, this is, we can do so much more with computers. And it completely destroyed the little platoon of civil society because yep. you had a bottleneck of just two people who were doing all of the layout now, basically. And people didn't gather and they didn't socialize and all that. And for me, it's always been almost sort of a metaphor for the way technology has been dismantling so much of civil society because you don't have to, you know, technology allows you to do things by yourself that you used to need lots of other people to help you do. Sure. And, um, and you see that all over the place, you know, where people are becoming atomized and, um, you know, and I think that the social media part of it is, is, is just sort of part of that, that longer story. Um, but anyway, and, and, the, and the struggle to replace it, right. was something wholesome. And I think that's why I'm so proud to be part of the dispatch. And I think that's, you know, not to, not to be tooting your horn, uh, but the, why it's important, uh, is we are going to have to replace what's missing. Mm-hmm. And being in community, human beings are social animals. We have to live in community with each other. That's why, to take it all the way back to the coronavirus stuff, when, when governors did not understand about the need for congregants to gather, right, the importance of, I'm antisocial to a pretty substantial degree, uh, and, but without, it, over, I don't know how many weeks, if you don't go to worship, it, things that force you out mm-hmm. of necessity I got to get out. I got to put on real pants. I got to go to the place and I got to go be with the people are really meaningful. Um, and I think we can have uh, online life. We can have a virtual, a digital life that has some of those virtues though. And I think joining the dispatch would be one of them. Yeah. We're delighted to have you around. And oh, um, last, last question before you kick me off. Yes. Do you think that this hurts or helps my chances for, I don't know how many times I've been on your podcast, mm-hmm. but I'm afraid that this will dim my chances to have a fifth appearance if I haven't already had one. I think Am I better or worse off? You, you've had, I think you've passed the, the, the gold jacket status. Really? Yeah. Okay. The problem is, is that now we dock your pay for the gold jacket. Um, it's worth it. I will return two of the cans of tuna fish that you gave me for, for this appearance. 
Um, and speaking of which, thank you very much for sending me um, meats and uh, cheeses, meats and cheeses, which are two of my favorite <laughs> f- forms of corporeal substance. Um, yes, yes, yes. The only thing is that it was it was fairly cruel because my wife sent me a picture. Oh no! While we were stuck in Austin, I was like, "This came for you," and I was like. I would pay $500 for that one piece of cheese right there. <laughs> and it's a fi- it's, it has the fondue cheese, which if you have not, it, it, fondue sounds like a pain, but if you, you patronize Murray's in New York, they sell this fondue blend that is easy to do and fantastic. I, um, I know Murray's well, although having grown up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, we were patrons of Murray's Sturgeon Shop, which is different than Murray's <laughs> cheese yeah, shop. I think it's- I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a goy's goy. I did not send you any sturgeon. Um, but Murray's, I think, I hope it survived the pandemic. And if you're ever on like 89th and Broadway, you should stop in and look at it. It's, it's a wonderful place with a bunch of old Jews cutting fish. And, um, um, and every Sunday for basically 20 years, my dad would take one or both of the boys and my mom would yell, uh, over her black coffee and cigarette, release the bagel answers. And we would go and go get bagels and cream cheese and locks and whatnot. Oh. And, um, and it was on those walks that I, as a small child, learned that, first of all, Stalin was a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But also, I wrote, I wrote about this in the eulogy for my dad. Um, Such a beautiful thing. Uh, it was on that walk that when I was five or seven or something like that, my dad stopped dead in the middle of the street, like on 87th and Broadway and grabbed my hand and said, Jonah, if you are ever arrested in a South American country, tell the officer, I'm very sorry. Is there any way I can pay the fine right here? It's great advice. It's just a little premature. Um, My my father used to carry, he always put a hundred dollar bill Back when hundred dollars was a lot of money, yeah, he always kept a hundred dollar bill behind his driver's license. Uh-huh. I, I, I hope my siblings will forgive me for telling this story. He kept a hundred dollar bill folded up behind his driver's license, so that if he thought the moment was right and a police officer asked for his identification, he could hand them the driver's license. And if they said, "What's this?" He's, "Oh, I keep that there for safekeeping." I'm very sorry, officer. <laughs> and he told me that the first rule was, and I'm not going to say whether or not I followed suit. The first rule is you can't look at the cop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to look away. <laughs> you have yeah. to hand him the ID and the money and looking away. I think um, our dads would have been great friends. I, that's an interesting theory. I, I, um, I, I, of that, I have no doubt. Um, I had a friend who owned a bar, restaurant bar in Adams Morgan. I won't get them in any trouble, although they've long since left DC. And uh, uh, she would tell me stories about how food inspectors would ask for bribes and <laughs> the way they did it was, or the way at least one guy did it was he went and did the inspection and then he's going over his notes, talking to them. And he just matter of factly says, you know what happened the other day? It was just the damnedest thing. I came back from the kitchen and someone had left like an envelope of cash for me on the bar. And I was like, that is just wild. And, 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 and it was like right next to my briefcase. And, um, you know, it was really interesting. And then he says, oh, I, I got to go check something in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Oh, beautiful. Uh, that's how we um, are going to operate a lot of, of the various perks when we finally get back, go back to the office. If you want, if you want the giant uh, steering wheel with the key to the bathroom, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you you leave a little something on my desk. A little something, a little something for the boss if you want to be back on the di- uh, if you want to be back on the remnant. So, um, are you going stir crazy, working, living from being in your home this much? I, mean, I guess no. you were for the pandemic anyway, so it's not that big a change. I was, and I'm this the this uh, uh, quasi unemployment stuff is a lot of work. Uh, uh-huh. I'm definitely I'm busier now than I was before. Um, because there's meetings and interviews and you're doing, doing, doing. So I've been very busy and that's been really good. The other thing that's been really good is I love these people, man. Uh, the amount you, you never know until you know, but the amount, the outpouring of affection and support and kindness and love that I've gotten from people, it's just been, it's, this is corny. It's overused and usually means the opposite. Uh, but it is humbling because you, or it, it adds to your sense of humility because you realize, you know, people are paying attention. I should do a good job. I should hold the line. I should be true to the person who God made me to be because these people, you know, the history has its eyes on you, even little old me. Yeah. No, look, I mean, that's something I've learned. I mean, you being cosseted in big media for so long. It was good too. Um, <laughs> you know, but one of the things I, you know, it having s- spent so long doing some version of this, whatever the hell this is, you it's only when something bad happens in your life that or that perceived as bad in your life that you discover that the people who don't write hate mail, who actually right. like and support you, chime in. And then it's yeah. not because they're bad. Be- you know, it's just like, like, they just- I don't either. Right. I don't, yeah. I don't write, I don't write George will uh, a note uh, and say uh, yet another good column, George will like, he doesn't need to hear that from me. Right. Uh, so you, you only hear from the, the usually only hear from the cranks, kooks, weirdos, and mean people, uh, not the lovely folks who I've heard from. Yeah. Good. So, um, and we are uh, delighted to figure out this next chapter, you know, yeah. play our, play our part. In this next chapter, I mean, I, I know that that interpretive dance is going to take up most of your time. It's a moomin shots, the toilet paper roll on the head thing. It's very, it's very interpretive. But thank you. That's why I sent you meat and cheese. I, <laughs> you did not need to do that, but I, it is appreciated. And I've never turned away meat and cheese. Um, tribute, tribute. Um, uh, but it's important to know the provenance of the meat and cheese, lest people so. just like wrap some random potted meat pork product chop. Yeah, put it, put, in the a mail. Pork, yeah. put a pork chop in a Ziploc bag and mail it to the dispatch. Don't do it. All right. So once again, we're descending into nano talk. So, uh, <laughs> with that, uh, Chris Dyrold, contributing editor of the dispatch, formerly of Fox news, great American and, um, reliable, dependable raconteur. Thank you for being on. You bet. Okay. So, uh, we are done with Chris. He is, he has left the studio as it were. And, uh, Sorry for any uh, sort of rambling, incomprehensibly tangential uh, meanderings from me. But as I said, I am, I am weary and I'm a little under the weather. Um, and um, I'm still decompressing from last week. And, uh, but it's always good to have Chris on and it's great to have him part of the family. And I hope people could tell our voices apart uh, sufficiently. Although it really doesn't. When you think about it, it doesn't matter as long as you know that we're different people and it wasn't me 
having some sort of weird multiple personality conversation with myself and that I was not, you know, every now and then lapsing into a West Virginia accent um, while I talked to myself, uh, then it doesn't really matter if you thought Chris said something versus whether I said something. Um, and please come by the dispatch, the dispatch.com. Uh, you know, our members are quite literally sort of everything to us in terms of, uh, our business model and, um, how we're going to keep growing this thing. And so if you're a fan of the remnant or the dispatch podcast or of Chris or Sarah, um, or just, I don't know, cured meats, uh, please, Become a member if you can. If you can't, these are difficult times. We understand, but maybe think about doing it in the weeks or months ahead as things start to improve. Um, regardless, uh, we're grateful to everybody, and I was I was very serious about how edifying and 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 encouraging the support we get from our readers and listeners is. And um, I'll see you next time, man. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.